thank you uh, all these who have led us this morning in music and for the choir that sang with them and the joy of raising our voices to praise to God. We are grateful to be a, have that so wonderfully to share in together. Uh, we return this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, I really, um, verses 1 through 13, merely make one whole message. We've already had two messages on just a partial portion of this. Um, I'd like to read all 13 verses, but for time's sake, I'm not going to, although we will refer to the entire 13 verses. I was going to pick up this morning with where, where we left off two weeks ago with verse 7. If you would stand with me as we read God's word and we honor it today and the Lord who gave it to us. Peter writes, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, sometimes people say, I don't like those fire and brimstone sermons. There are passages where <laughs> if you're going to teach the Bible, it's a fire and brimstone service, I suppose. I believe God has a lot to say to us this morning. I believe it may rattle a few cages. You're the job. We are Baptists. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. You are to hear me as I have done my best to seek what I think God's word for us. But you must discern as you read the scriptures for yourself and trust the Holy Spirit to find out if what I'm saying is true. So before you dismiss some of the things I may say this morning, I ask you at least ask the Lord to help you understand the scripture rightly as you look at them yourself. Father, what a daunting task to, to think that we could hear directly from you, and yet you've given us this word, this perfect word, this infallible word, your word, and we trust that you will now, by your spirit, teach us and guide us and direct us. You know what a weak messenger and servant you have to bring this message, but there's also weakness in our hearts and all of us to even be able to hear rightly. So we ask in both directions, Father, that you would be at work this morning, that the gospel could be proclaimed clearly and wonderfully and that we would respond with hearts submitted in love and obedience as your servants. We would ask that you would draw any who do not yet know you, who have never come into that wonderful saving relationship in Christ, that maybe even this morning they would sense the urgency of this issue and they might believe and trust and follow you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Many of you may not know this about me, but among my many gifts, I am also quite an inventor. 
Well, let's just imagine. Let's use your imagination this morning. Suppose that I have just invented a new thimble. We know the world's crying out for better thimbles, right? And if I was to tell you this morning that I've invented this new thimble and I'm offering you an opportunity to buy shares in my new thimble company for $5 a share, and if at the same time I could absolutely convince you that those shares five years from now will be worth $5,000, what would you do? Or let's put it another way. Maybe if I could tell you this morning with some kind of absolute certainty that Apple would be worth worth less than Theranos, the company that's just gone bankrupt and lost everything, in a year from now, some of you would be checking your portfolios, wouldn't you? I hope you would. Let's get out of the realm of of stocks and bonds. What if I could tell you that Florida was going to be completely and permanently submerged in three years' time? What would you do today with that knowledge? Those are questions that have to do with time and with value. Now, I would like to treat time this morning like we traded water a couple weeks ago and do all the Wikipedia stuff. There's simply not time for that, and the Lord won't let me. I asked him, and he won't let me. But I do have a message that has to do with time this morning, because that's Peter speaks in much of time. As you know, time is simply the orderly sequence of events of our life. Um, The best way, I think, for me to think about time is uh, what you go to the airport, other places where they have these long, moving sidewalks where you step on it and it moves you along. Well, when we are born conceived actually but we are attached to that moving thing called time we can't go backwards we can't go forwards but it is continually moving us forward we have a pretty good sense of what's behind us what's in front of us is always less certain but it is how we live life and we know that it is made up time as we experience it is past it is present and it is future If I was leading a Bible study group this morning, I would propose a debate to begin the discussion and have someone defend the argument that the past is the most important person, important part of this, the present. Someone would take that one and someone would argue that the future would be most important. Well, of course, the fact of the matter is we can't separate ourselves from either our past, our present, or our future. We all have a past. We're living in the present, but it is constantly propelling us into the future. So my proposal is to take this text this morning, let those three words, those three ideas, I think I have a past, present, and future, and to break my sermon into those three parts, past, present, and future. Let's begin with the past. This will be, in a sense, a review. You remember Peter's been dealing with false teachers who uh, imagined themselves as very bright philosophical theologians. They had undoubtedly tried to present themselves as that, but the truth, as as Peter points out, is they were living immoral, selfish, egotistical, dishonest lives, and they were trying to twist the scriptures, twist the gospel, so that it would make that kind of life okay. They scoffed at the idea that Christ was returning as judge. That life was a linear thing where you you finally would have to face and give an account and be responsible for the life that you had lived. And they mocked that very idea. They seemed to have said, there's no judgment coming. Just look at it. Life keeps going on and on. The seasons come, they go, the days go by. Jesus has ascended to heaven. What, it's been many decades now. Almost all of his original apostles are gone. Everybody thought he was coming back right away, and and he hasn't returned, and And so life is going to go on. Nothing changes. Don't be worried about that. 
And Peter, in answering that argument, we noted, has said they don't know history. And he insists that history at the past is important, that it matters. Now, there have been a lot of people at all times in history, usually they're the majority of people, who live in one way or another and and say that the whole idea of believing in the living God and organizing your life around that is really a nonsensical thing to do. And there are no limit to the number of people who would tell you that, look at reality. There are billions of people, You churches you get together, and you're, you're all about promoting the gospel and sending missionaries and all this stuff. And, and don't you know, people don't care about your little gospel story. They could care less of that... Uh, you want to talk about it and you want to say how to live around it. They, they have a completely different understanding of life and they honestly don't need it. They don't care about the Ten Commandments. They don't care about the Sermon on the Mount. They don't care about this, what you say is this coming day when you're going to stand before God. You Christians call things sin and, and you say it's rampant all over the world and it is, but it's not. We don't consider it sin. It's just how we live. It's norm. In fact, these days, we're convinced that you guys are the ones that are the moral pygmies. Sooner or later, you Christians have to face the facts. You're just going to fade away into oblivion. The days are going to come. We're not going to have to put up with all this echo that's always going on with you guys behind the scenes. It's just going to fade away. We can only imagine John Lennon's famous Marxist theme song. Second Peter 3 Verses 3 through 4, Peter says, scoffers will come. They will mock the truth and they will follow their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? Everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Peter is saying, no, look at the past. Look at the past. It matters and look at it carefully. He says, to start with, these people forgot the little fact of creation. God is the creator. He made the world. He upholds the world. Out of nothing, he spoke everything into existence. Now, if that seems to you a nonsensical idea that there was a God at the beginning who spoke everything out of nothing, I want to ask you how you feel about your doctrine that's the only one that you really can fall back on is that nothing created everything. I feel pretty safe where I stand. By his word, he took this water-covered planet, he brought order and life and purpose and beauty to it. As we all know, those two beings made in God's image came a point, a critical point, where they did not believe God's word. Sin entered creation, and in a few generations, Adam and most of the people uh, who had come from him, almost all of them had deliberately forgotten God. We talked about this Wednesday night, that there's a kind of forgetfulness that we have that we just forget. I'm forgetting things all the time. But there's another kind of forgetfulness that is deliberate forgetfulness. And that's what the world had done. They forgot who created it all, who owns it all. So Genesis 6, 5 says, At that point the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so it seemed like all the plans for God, everything he had dreamed of, wanted, whatever his purposes were for the earth, it had all been washed away. It was all being lost. And yet God acted. The God who is the creator, who creates order and and planning and purpose to it all is able to break into the normal ordering of his creation. Those are generally what we call miracles. Now you'll notice that in the Old Testament, miracles almost always had to do with killing people. Most of the Old Testament miracles were people dying in judgment. We call them judgment miracles. And the most famous of them was the flood. 
We note that the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and, and many peoples across the earth have this ancient memory, and they have written their own accounts, many of them kind of quite fantastic, but they all speak of this cataclysmic, world-changing flood. It is an event that is told truly in pages of the Bible. God told Noah of the coming rain and the deluge. He commanded Noah to get to work to build an ark. 120 years he took to build it. We can only imagine the ridicule that he faced. But Noah kept hammering when he had an opportunity. He kept preaching. The people kept laughing, ignoring the judgment. Life went on as it had always gone on. Day after day, they just did what they always did. It was only too late after it started the rain that the scoffers found out Noah knew exactly what he was doing. In every generation since then and in our generation, there are people like those in Noah's day who scoff. They were doing it in Peter's day. Now, when that judgment of the flood came, it entirely changed the order of things. There was a whole new atmosphere to the world. Men no longer lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Very soon, they would struggle to live even 80 years. Dinosaurs, as well as many other species, disappeared, unable, because the whole environment of the world had changed and would take a while to, to repopulate. Now, that past event, that flood, is not just some ancient story. Peter says that ancient past is very relevant to what is coming. He says in verse 6 that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He says, pay attention to that because he says, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so God had pledged in Genesis that he would never visit the earth with judgment again over all the earth in a worldwide flood. But he is not saying that there will not be a worldwide event in which all humanity will be destroyed again. This time it will be a world stored up for fire. So the past is very relevant. You remember after the flood, God chooses a people to be his uniquely in the world. And just as time that they're beginning to thrive, they get trapped into slavery, 300, 400 years in Egyptian slavery. There's misery, there's economic decline, there's spiritual decline. If you looked at the situation, you'd say, well, whatever God's plans were for people and Israel, it's coming to nothing. They're going to be just swallowed up in history like all the other people. The Egyptians are enslaved, and then God acted. He sends Moses, and he rescues his people. Even after the rescue, though, they've left Egypt. Pharaoh's attacks he brings his army to bear against them they're they're trapped with their backs to the sea and mountains to the side they can't fight they can't run it's all lost everything is doomed but you know the story you've seen the movie the red sea parts and they walk to freedom the egyptian army pursues them and they are destroyed things like that will happen over and over again throughout the old testament not all of them so dramatic. In fact, none of them quite as dramatic as that. But amazing ways that God sovereignly works in history as he worked in their life. Walls fall down. Shepherd boys defeat giants. It's all kinds of things happen. But God keeps intervening when it looks like everything's lost. And Peter has reminded these false prophets and the people of that day of these truths. He says in verse 2 of this third chapter, he speaks of the Old Testament truth when he speaks about the predictions of the holy prophets. And then he reminds them of the New Testament truth, of the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's talking about the New Testament. See, the story of the Old Testament is that while God kept working, kept trying to preserve a people, even when they come back from Babylonian captivity, they keep spiraling down until there's hardly anything left of real faith, of the real purpose of God in their life. And it looks like 
it too is all going to be lost and then God gives his son. Jesus comes into the world. He acts for God. He does miracles, but his miracles are so different. They are miracles of life and healing and wholeness and salvation. His fame, his reputation spread. No one has spoken like this man has spoken. No one has done the works that this man has done. And yet for all that he is bringing to the world, there's a response of sin, of resentment and jealousy. Men who do not want this man to be their true king. And before it's done, the crowds that once thronged now become malicious and hostile. Jesus, who had lived a perfect, radiant, holy life, is plotted against, betrayed, denied, deserted, mocked, beaten, hung helpless on a cross until he dies, and then he is buried. It's done. It's just done, so they said. And then resurrection. And then Pentecost. The kingdom has come. All those mysteries of the Old Testament, those prophecies that hardly made any sense. You couldn't, what do they matter? Some, they, you see, they all get fulfilled in Christ. The law is no longer out there external. It becomes a matter of our heart. The Holy Spirit falls. The church is born. The world begins to be transformed fundamentally in ways that had never happened before. And yet sin still is real. As God blesses people with the gospel, that one generation's faithfulness and their blessings seem to so often become sin's trap for those who would follow. And yet the Lord is still at work. Though even those who are His, there's great declines and false teaching dominates. There's always a few who are true. And there are revivals where God restores that people who seem so far away and seem so hopeless and so, so nothing can come of it. There's reformation. You think of England, the beginning of the 18th century. There was not a city in the history of the world that was probably more vile and more further from, from the things that God would desire for people. It was a horror. The people were convinced that the church was finished. And yet revival fell in, in London and England. Some of the great preachers of history sprung up and, and people renewed and, and a nation was renewed. And it's happened like that over and over, sometimes in nations, sometimes in churches, sometimes in families. And running through all of that, there is this promise that's left hanging out there, the one that hasn't yet been fulfilled, and that this Jesus is coming back. He has promised a future, a victorious return. Promised in the past, we taste it now, but it's not in its fullness. And the scoffers say, oh, but it's been so long. But Peter says, no, he's still coming back. And what you say is so long is simply because you don't understand time. You don't know how God experiences time. He doesn't do it like we do. Verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. Now, we, of course, in the 20th century, have discovered it in fact. There's more to that than we could have guessed. Only in the last hundreds of years, so we realize that time is a much more complicated thing than we imagined. But even on another level, we all as human beings in every age know that time is, in, in one sense, it's measurable, it's, it's, it's static, it's, you know, just like a gallon is a gallon and a foot is a foot. So a minute is a minute and an hour is an hour and there are, you know, one minute is the same as an And yet, as we experience it, it's not really that way, is it? We know that uh, you can go be with some friends and, and spend an evening with them and, and suddenly you look at your watch and say, where did the time go? And you just you enjoyed it so much. At other times, you're in a meeting or someplace, and you say, man, I didn't think we'd ever get to that place. Some of you are feeling that way right now. 
We know that the older we get, and young people, you have to bear with this because you hear it all the time. I heard it all the time growing up. It's your turn. But when we get older, we just know time moves faster. Just yesterday, I was just in grade school, and you know, coming back to Vero Beach where I grew up has been an amazing thing to walk around and pass these places that was my childhood. I, it was just like yesterday, and then I look at how many years it's been, and, and it's just yesterday I was in high school, and then, and then we got married, and, and, and we had the kids, and they were so young, and now, and, and life is just, whoosh. Things are like that. John Piper makes the point that, that joy makes us experience time like God. That what seems long is not so long when we're, we're full of joy. And God is a God who is full of joy. So again, if you're bored out of your mind by my preaching right now, it's, you're not experiencing joy. I wish you would. We've gone on a vacation, and man, it was just one of those magical vacations. Every day was rich and full. And at the end of a week, in the two weeks, you say, how can it be over? I don't even remember. It was just so rich and so wonderful. Peter's point is, there's no argument against Christ's second coming simply because some decades have passed or now, in fact, 1,990 years have passed since Jesus' departure. God's experience of time, from his experience, is like Jesus just arrived to sit at the right hand in heaven. And it's going to be just a moment later that he'll be returning. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is like that. I can read you a dozen scriptures in the Old Testament that remind us of that. Numbers 14, 8, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Remember that God was like this is what motivated Jonah to run. It wasn't that he was afraid of the Ninevites. But he was afraid he was going to go and preach and they were going to repent. He wanted them to be destroyed. At the end of the book of Jonah, he says, Oh, Lord, is not that what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew about you, that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. What a tragedy when the mockers of our day and Peter's day and Noah's day and all the others take the very patience of God that's giving us another opportunity to repent, to get our life in line with his will, and all we do is turn it into just more evidence that Christ isn't coming, that none of this is real. My friend, if that is you this morning, I just ask you, what are you going to say when God asks you, why did you take my gift of time for repenting and use it as an argument for unbelief. Well, the past is important. Of course it is. But so is the future. God is the Lord of the universe. He is certainly not going to allow Satan to win. Satan is on a leash. There's an end to that leash. God is the Lord of history. He must reign. His glory must be revealed. He is Lord. The Lord reigneth. Let the people rejoice. And so in verse 10, Peter clearly moves to the future. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. That word is a, a Greek word that's meant to sound like what it's talking about. It's, it's the closest I can come up with is whoosh. That's what it's going to be like. It's going to pass away with a whoosh. Just like that. I like saying that. Whoosh. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up. I, I think the better word there is elements. Um, but that's biblical scholars debate over those right terms there. Will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it 
will be exposed. The Stoics argued that all matter, based on Heraclitus, that all matter was, was all there was and that all of it was doomed eventually for fire, that it would end up in a conflagration, but then out of that the earth would be reborn, there would be new earth, and it would just go round and round and round. Well, Peter says the end of this is fire, but it's not a, it's not a cycle. It is linear history, and it's ending with God's judgment. Our own Larry Hoffaditz, who uh, knows a lot about the physical world of science, he knows the Bible, wrote an article called The Biggest Bang Ever. He wrote about these verses. He says, now comes the most interesting, fascinating, yet threatening revelation. What would it be like if every atom in the entire universe split apart? And then he mentions these verses, verses 10 through 12. He said they describe a cataclysmic event that sure sounds like an atomic explosion beyond comprehension. Tremendous amounts of heat energy is released from when atoms of uranium are split in a nuclear plant. Some of you know about that, don't you? That's why there's small containers with just a few rods placed in huge, what we call maybe a swimming pool, and they have huge cooling towers dissipate the huge amount of heat generated by those little bits of, not, of, of matter. Then Larry writes, we need not fear an annihilation of the world by nuclear warfare, but ensure our only trust for deliverance is in the Lord Jesus Christ. His complete payment for all the sins of everyone on the cross at Calvary and the resurrection from the dead. And then Larry writes, one day he's going to say, that's all, folks. And the biggest bang ever will occur. Well, none of us know exactly how it's going to happen, but that's probably not far from it at all, is it? Verse 10 says, the day of the Lord will come. The term the day of the Lord is a technical term. It's used all the way through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. You'll find it mentioned in Isaiah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, and all of them, they describe it the same way. It's a day of darkness, a day of destruction. It's called a day of judgment. It's a day when God will set fire on this earth. And all the ungodly, those who have never received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work at the cross, will face a destruction, not obliteration, but they will lose every precious thing they were meant to have in God. And they will face an eternity of darkness and turmoil. First Thessalonians 5.2 says, But for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. This day is coming. And then the other thing we always know about it is we don't know when. Jesus said it's not for you to know these times. Now Peter is, is writing in in the first century, the gospel is only a few decades old. We're not sure exactly how many. But Jesus has only ascended to heaven maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago. And yet from that first generation of Christians till today, the, the description of his people is we are people, when we are rightly aligned with him, we sort of lean forward. We, we live in anticipation of his coming. That's why he doesn't tell us when he's coming. So that we will, every generation, live being ready, living in anticipation. That's how Christians are supposed to live. Now, there is an interesting fact about Peter. Peter knew something about the, the timing of Christ's return that no other human being in all that time was able to know. Peter, the only person I know of, had some sense of timing because he knew that while he was still living, Jesus would not return. John 21, Jesus had told him that he would... He would at one point be arrested, that he would be taken, that he would be killed, and he would die. He knew that had to happen before Jesus returned. So he knew that. You and I, my mama's here. She's 90 years old. I hope she's going to live to be 120. I think she is. But, but she can't know. She may be here when Jesus comes back. Now, there are all kinds of practical things that come out of this. 
And I want to bring one or two to your mind, and this is where you may not like me anymore. There are some of you worried about things in the future that I want to just humbly tell you this morning, you don't have to worry about. I'm particularly concerned about young people. Your generation has been been raised to believe that, boy, it's too late for a good old planet Earth, that we're killing the planet, that, in fact, it's already doomed, that there's, a, there's not this, this massive reorganization of life and everything else. Uh, it's, it's, it's just doomed. We're going to kill it. We're going to kill it. Now, listen, we have a responsibility to good stewards of this earth. That's, that's a part of being a Christian. We can mess it up. There's no doubt about it. But this idea that, that, that human beings are going to so undermine this planet that God wasn't able to create a world and a planet that was, was vigorous enough and, and strong enough to withstand us and that we're just, it, our future all hinges on what we do there is, is nonsense. I heard England's Prince William this morning whining, oh, we should even be sending people to outer space. We've we got to de- dedicate every... Nonsense. We live in a time of insanity. I don't know everything. I'm not a climatologist. I admit that. But in the name of science, to call climate change the way it's being pushed now, a supposed science that it's all settled facts, it can't be questioned, it can't be debated. Any data that seems to mitigate against, against what people say we already know is not even allowed to be, be put forward, to be studied, to be known about. Everything that even Google and everybody else can do to keep you from even being aware of that I want to give you a little biblical secret this morning. I don't know everything about this. But I'm going to tell you this. Mankind's not going to bring down this planet. There's one who will bring down the planet. It's not you, and it's not us collectively. I was around uh, when the ecology movement began. I remember the first Earth Day. I took it pretty seriously. And some good things have come out of that. We have better air and better water. There's a lot of things that we still need to pay attention to. But I heard back in those early 70s, According to all the experts and the people that revered that, that the earth would probably never make the year 2000 and that if it did make the year 2000, you wouldn't want to live here because the human population was so exploding, we are going to be crawling over each other like cockroaches and the whole world was going to be just a dump beyond saving. And then after that, of course, it was, uh, we're all going to freeze to death and then we're all going to be burned up with the global warming and now we've suddenly changed that, haven't we? It's climate change. So that every storm, every, every event, every fire, everything is proof. Climate's changing. It's, and I'm not saying there's not things I have to worry about here, but I'm just telling you, by the way, climate warming is probably where we should have stayed because that gets closer to the truth. This world's going to get a lot warmer, but it's not we who are going to bring it. It's the Lord who's going to do the warming. And you have a lot of things to worry about, young people and old people, and we ought to pay attention to these, but, but that would put them way down on the list of priorities. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Genesis 8.22 when that second biosphere that God created on this world was made. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So what determines while the earth remains? Who determines that? God determines that. And when he determines that it's done, it'll be done. But until he does, it shall not cease. You're not going to kill the planet. God made it so it can sustain us. We can use it for our good. We can use it for our joy. We ought to use it wisely, but we can use it in a way that will praise him 
We ought to support every effort to take care of it as best we can. But in the meantime, and these aren't my words, but I agree with them, step on the grass, shoot a deer, drill for oil. You search the scripture yourself and see what you think. The present heaven and the earth are reserved, though, for our future destruction. This earth is not, Mother Earth is not our, all our future. It's not all tied up there. There's a day of judgment and destruction coming, and it means the destruction of ungodly men. The first time with water, the second time with fire. Now, when Peter mentions fire, by the way, there's nothing new about that. From Deuteronomy all the way through the end of the Bible, the, the coming end, the coming judgment, the final, is described in fire. I have three or four pages of just scriptures that speak of that. And the other thing, of course, we know is that it's going to come. It's going to come at a time that no one can predict. It will sur be a surprise to, to everyone. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Peter says it. It's going to come like a thief. So if you get a call this afternoon at 4 o'clock, as somebody says, and you answer it, you don't, you, you, you don't think it's spam, and, and the guy says to you, look, I'm your local neighborhood robber, and uh, just to make things fair, I thought I'd let you know, 2 o'clock this morning, I'm going to break in your house and steal everything you've got. And if you took him seriously, what would you do? You'd have police waiting, and if you had guns, you'd probably have them ready. Well, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. It, it's not going to be announced like that. As the men in Noah's day would have liked to have known, instead of mocking Noah for building the boats, they wish they had paid attention to what he had to say about deliverance. When judgment comes, it will be too late. Now, this is going to happen at the end of history. You and I probably know people in life who thought they had a long time to live, and suddenly they didn't. You don't know. Now, how do we apply all this? What are we to do with this? In other words, what does this have to do with the last of our points? What does it have to do with the present? Verse 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be, live, be and live lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the hastening and the coming of the day of God? What sort of people ought you to be? You may be here this morning, you say, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's kind of interesting what he had to say. I, uh, these, this, these churches, they are always preaching the gospel, and, and it really, after all, is just one of many points of view in the world. There are all kinds of perspectives about life and ideas and what you ought to prioritize. And these preachers, these churches, these Christians, they're always promoting this message about this so-called gospel. Just another, another opinion, another voice out there. I want to be clear to you this morning, I don't think it's the same at all. I think it's in a whole other category. I want to be very clear this morning. I want us to be clear as a church about what we're called to do. We're not here to appeal for people's votes. We're not asking people to come support our cause. I don't want us to think of our church as some institution or club or political party or anything like that. And the whole reason we try to get the word out is we need to build the, the team here. That's not what we're about. And so I'm just not this morning, and I shouldn't any morning, ask you to support the Christian church or just join our church or help our church. That's not, that's not the heart of what we're about. I'm not here to flatter anyone, please anyone, bribe anyone. I'm not to pander to your taste or your notions or desires. Politicians may have to do that. The gospel does not. But what we do have to do as a people of God, as a church of Jesus Christ, is to declare the message of God. We're not looking for people to help us. By the way, if you want to know why we have financial policies here where we don't go out and get the world to support our mission, 
It's because it's not their mission. And I'm not asking for their help. God gives us what we need financially to do it. And if he, what he doesn't give, we don't do. But he will provide it. We, it it's, we're not looking for their help. We have a message to tell them. It is our commission. Paul said he was an ambassador bringing a message. God has a program and a plan for the world. And our business is to tell that message in the hopes that it will win and teach every man. And I think you ought to listen to it. You ought to pay attention to it. Because the truth is the future of every nation, of every individual, and of the whole world is in the hands of God. He created this place. He owns this place. He has given his son Jesus on a cross to save this world and to save you. And the future of our world hangs in his hands. So today, if you are not, and if you don't know it, and if by grace and faith in Christ you have not received it, be saved. Turn from yourself and turn from your sin. Turn from your, your own plan to, to save yourself and trial to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would plead with you, do it today. Do it now. And Christian, ask yourself now, if you've received this gift, what kind of person should you be? We should be living lives of holiness and godliness. You should be living with all that God enables you to do by his spirit to live the very same kind of life you plan to live in the new heavens and the new earth. The kind of person you expect to be there, you say, God, make it as much as you can do in my life. Make it in me now. You say you had this whole message about fire coming, and we're to look forward to that? Yes, we look forward to that. Because it's, it's going to be the fate of those apart from Christ. But for us, what it means is verse 13, it's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth that he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. God is so patient. He's waiting. He's giving. He's still giving you an opportunity to turn and trust him. This is how he's always been. In the Old Testament, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. A little child shall lead them. It's a glorious day. The world's going to be marvelous. And he's going to make you so that you can live in it and be righteous in it. Treaties aren't going to get that done. The United Nations is not going to make it happen. The next election is not going to make it happen. It's not here yet. There are probably some hard days between this point and that point, but it's coming. It is our future, and it's where we ought to invest our life. Everything in this letter reminds us not to let Christ's coming be on the back burner of our life, but to be like a little kid looking for Christmas. Make it the focus of our hearts and set our hearts on it. Invest wisely. You have to figure out how to do that. You ought to, at the heart of it, want to take the gospel and make it as widespread as you possibly can. You ought to look at every person you know, every relationship you have, every person who comes across. There may be other business you're doing with them, but at the heart of your heart is, Lord, do they know Jesus? How can I help them know the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ? I tell you what, the goal of your life should not be simply to reduce your carbon footprint. And the role of your life ought not to be just accumulate money and wealth. There's nothing wrong with money and some wealth. But if you give your life to that, if that's what your goal, in fact, if you sell your life and your family or your hopes to simply accumulate that, it's all a worthless investment. It's going to be gone soon. We want to use every resource God has given us, has put it on this planet to benefit people and to do it in the name of Christ and to bring glory to God who gave it to us. We want to live knowing that. That's the message of first, Second Timothy chapter 3. That's the message of the whole Bible. There's a God who made us, who owns us, and the future belongs to him just as your life belongs to him. Trust him. Be his servant now. Know his life. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being yours. So many in this room do know you, and they love you. 
They've been called to be a part of this whole enterprise of sharing this message. Oh, God, help us. Help us to be those people by how we live, by how we speak, by how we prioritize. And, Lord, even now as we prepare to take of these remembrances of the great love you had for us, oh, Father, enable us to surrender ourselves wholly and fully again to you and to your great plan for us and for our world. In Jesus' name we pray.